Turn to John chapter 17. And read the second half of this chapter. Starting in verse 13. And prior prior to this in the book of John, uh, Jesus has been you know, John's a really repetitive book. And um, in some ways that makes it very nice to read because he just keeps hammering and hammering home his point. And in some ways it makes it hard to preach through because I think to myself, well, I don't know, should I just preach another sermon on the same topic? But John has been going through trying to focus in on a few different themes. And one of those themes is the unity that Christ, Jesus Christ, has with his Father. And we see that theme brought back up over and over again in the book of John. And one of the things that he says, and we haven't made it this far in the book yet, but that he says the reason he wrote the book is so that we might believe. And that believing we would have life in his name. And And then he begins to distinguish between true belief and false belief. Remember that even the demons believe in God and shudder, right? And so there is is a belief that leads to faith and salvation, and there is a belief that simply says, yeah, I know it's true, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. And so recently, uh, as we've been going through John, we made it to the, uh, the time where the Last Supper occurs, where John, I mean, where Jesus is with his disciples, and they're celebrating the Passover with one another, and Judas is getting ready to betray Jesus, and Jesus sends him out. And Jesus is left alone with his disciples, and he begins to teach them. And we've been, we've been going through some of those things that he teaches them. And then, after he tells them to pray, and that God will answer their prayers, he then turns and begins to pray himself. And that's where we are in uh, chapter 17. The whole chapter is Jesus' prayer. So we're picking up in the middle of it. Please stand for the reading of God's word. John 17, verses 13 through 26. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus again, praying to his Father and speaking of his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, 
that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. For the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Recently, I was talking to a non-Christian who had stumbled upon a theological argument on Facebook. You guys familiar with these things, theological arguments on Facebook? Maybe some of you uh, younger people don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but they can be uh, they can they can be pretty intense. Um, They can get pretty heated, and this one was a doozy of a fight, and. This non-Christian is reading over a hundred comments, right? And thinking to himself, what in the world is going on here? He doesn't understand the words, you know, he doesn't understand the concepts, the theological argument, but he sees the intensity and he just, he can't stop reading. He goes and he's looking stuff up on Wikipedia and and, uh, trying to grasp what's going on here. This is a new, a new world opening before his eyes. And it's a sad world to have open before his eyes, right? Accusations made, tempers flared. And so as we were talking afterwards, he asked me why people got so upset in the conversation. After all, he says, isn't it all children of God in the conversation? Weren't they all going to go to heaven? Shouldn't they just get along with each other? What makes it such a contentious issue? Or is it the people? Or what's going, what's just, why is this happening? He just doesn't understand. Unity in Christ is important, isn't it? Unity in Christ is important. And if you allow me to skip ahead just for a moment, you think about this man and think about him watching, observing this fight unfold before him. You see that uh, in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's, that's one of the reasons 
that Jesus gives for his prayer for unity. That they may be one, right? And this man was seeing something that was not unity, right? And dare I say, was not helpful in causing him to believe that the Father sent Jesus the Son. Unity in Christ is very important. And it's in this passage, among many other places in the New Testament, that we see the importance of unity. Christ prays for the unity of his people. But he doesn't just pray for unity. He also, through some of the things that he says, begins to tell us a lot about what true unity looks like. And why it's important. And so we learn a lot about unity from his prayer. We don't just see that it's important. We learn what unity is, what it looks like. And it's, of course, fitting that we would study unity and Christ's prayer for unity as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper with one another this morning. Because one of the things that Paul teaches... The Apostle Paul explains to us about this supper is that it's a meal of unity, that unity is essential in this meal. So if you think about this word unity, maybe some of you kids don't have any idea what I'm talking about. You littler kids are all drawing. They don't care anyway, right? Hey, are you guys listening? Unity means getting along with each other. This is something that applies in the home as well as the church, right? Do you guys get along with each other? If you're not getting along with each other, then you don't have unity. But if you do get along with each other, then you have unity. I just had this picture pop up in my mind of, that, that I have of my, two of my girls carrying a great big basket of sand toys to the garage and they had to work together to get it there. If they tried to go opposite directions, sand toys would have dumped everywhere and there would have been a fight, right? So unity means being in agreement with each other, having the same goal as one another, working together. And this is very simple, simple enough for you kids to understand, but it also is something that adults need to be reminded of. What unity actually looks like. And every once in a while, you'll have somebody who, while reading through the New Testament, uh, will come across this passage, or maybe uh, one of the others that's like it, that talks about the importance of unity in the body of Christ, and decides that they're going to take it upon themselves to make a big deal out of unity, to promote unity, and they're going to have some great big get-together among all the Christians in the area 
to demonstrate unity so that the world, the watching world, will see that Christians are united in spite of all of these arguments that they've seen on Facebook. Right? Well, it's taking unity seriously. Right? But there's a problem with that. Because it's both uh, taking unity in a, making unity in one sense too important and not important enough. It's treating unity both too deep and too shallow. To overcome our differences, to make it so that those kinds of Arguments and, and fights among Christians on Facebook don't happen requires more than simply uh, singing a song from the 60s and we're all going to get along and get together and love one another, right? There's, there's more to it than that. And Jesus makes that clear here in this passage. So unity is a hard topic. And I pray that We all come away today with a greater desire for unity among Christians and a deeper understanding of what true unity looks like. So, what is this unity that Jesus is speaking about? If it's not just singing kumbaya and love one another right now. And it's not. That's not what you see him describing here, all right? Then what is it? Jesus is speaking of true unity. You reason that you can tell that it's something more, something deeper than let's all ignore our differences and close our eyes and pretend like we can all get along with each other just perfectly, is because he compares it to another unity. And that other unity is the unity that he has with his Father. It's the unity between Christ, Jesus Christ, and his Father who sent him. Verse 21, right as he's praying for unity, he says that they may all be one, that's his prayer, even as, here's the comparison, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see that? The type of unity that he's looking for is the unity that he has with the Father. That's the kind of unity that he is praying for to be among his people. And that is not a unity that is simply uh, ignoring our differences and deciding that we're going to get along, is it? Verse 22 reiterates that point. Jesus repeats himself. He says that they may be one. Again, that's the prayer. Just as we are one. Again, speaking to his heavenly Father. But Jesus actually takes it a step further than saying, I want their unity to be like our unity. He then proceeds to say that this unity that he's praying for is not just between us. 
this unity that he's praying for is not simply between me and you and the other crazy people on Facebook. Includes us, you understand. And the other people. Okay. This unity is actually between ourselves and God. Verse 21, he continues and says that they also may be in us. That is the end goal of the unity. You see, he's talking to the Father. He's, talk, he's asked that, there would be, that, that his people would be one. And then he says, not just that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So unity extends not just between me and you, or you and each other, or people in other churches. Unity extends all the way to God himself, through Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 22, we see that same theme. He continues and says, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So being perfected in unity, the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about, includes us being in him. Not just being in uh, agreement with one another, but us being in him and him in the Father. Now, if you're, if you're just reading through the book of John, breezing through it, and you're, you're noticing some of the themes, one of the themes that you'll see in John on a regular basis is the divinity of Jesus Christ reiterated over and over and over again. He, John makes it clear through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is God. From the very beginning of the book to the very end of the book, that theme is, is made abundantly clear. And so because of that, as you get to this passage, if you have that firmly in your mind, you might get a little bit confused when you read these words. Let me read them again. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Or, continuing verse 22, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me. Now, if Jesus is speaking of his divinity, then this would be a very confusing thing, right? Because it would mean that we're going to be made into God. If we're going to be united in exactly the same way, and Jesus is speaking about his divinity, then we've got some crazy Mormon 
idea going on here. Or new age idea that somehow unity is going to mean that we're all going to, you know, bring our life forces back together and, and join the one true force. Okay, now, I bring this up not because I think you guys thought that reading this passage, but rather because this is the, general, the other general idea of unity that the world has today. Okay, there's, there's the unity of, you know, everybody just close your eyes and plug your ears and say, I love everybody, we're all going to get along. Okay? And then there's the unity of, well, all is one and one is all. And we're going to, you know, we just got to make sure that, that we're going with the flow, the, the, the life energy and the force of, of the, the power of the universe. And, and when we, we came out of it and we have this little path and we, we come back into it. Right? Have you guys read this or seen this or heard this from people? If you haven't yet, you will soon. All right? Um, and, and if you're not paying attention, it can sound really good, like, because they can, they can switch up their wording to make it appeal very much to Christians. Man, God is one. And I believe that we all came out from God and we're all going to go back to God. You see how much better that sounds than what I was saying before? Tricky though, isn't it? Is that what the Bible says? Is that the unity that Jesus is talking about here? No, it's not the unity that Jesus is talking about here. And part of the reason that you can tell is because... The whole context that Jesus is speaking in uni- of, of this unity is summed up in verse 14. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Or verse 16, again, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. <clears throat> So what does Jesus mean by unity? Well, he doesn't mean, let's ignore all of our differences and just get along with each other. And he doesn't mean that we're going to you know, just end up going back to God one way or another somehow and that you know, we ought to chill out in the meantime and try to go with the flow. This is not also the Mormon concept that we're all going to become God or that we're all going to become little gods. John does not only emphasize the divinity of Christ, he also emphasizes, and this is what we're seeing here, okay, the unity of his will with the Father's will. Over and over and over again, he speaks of his own obedience to the Father. I have done and said exactly what the Father sent me to do and say. Exactly what the Father told me to do and say, I did. I am doing. Right? 
And so what he is speaking of here is his own perfectly aligned will to the Father's. Perfectly aligned. And this is what true unity looks like for us. Do you understand? This is what true unity looks like for us. That we would have our will be the same as the will of Jesus, just as his will is the same as the Father's. Do you see that? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. It's in this context that that Jesus can say he sanctifies himself. Right? We think of that normally, that's just confusing to us. How could Christ sanctify himself? Doesn't that mean that he's a sinner? But what he's speaking of is his uniting himself to the will of the Father in obedience. His word is truth. And so what this means is that true unity, the unity that Jesus is speaking of, the unity that he is praying for for his people, can only happen insofar as they are seeking Christ's will. I'll say that again. The unity that Jesus is speaking about can only happen to the extent that his people are seeking his will. They are to be of one mind, but that one mind that they are to be of is his mind. They are to want the same things, but what they are to want is what he wants. They are to be seeking Christ's will. It is not enough that we want the same things as each other. It is absolutely essential and necessary that we want the same things as God the Father wants. Without that, there cannot be unity. There cannot be the unity that Jesus is speaking of. Because he bases it in his own unity with the Father. Now, what is the purpose of this unity? Well, I've already hit on it a little bit in saying, verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Or verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. And so, If you think about desiring to have unity among God's people, among believers, um, and you think about the watching world and the desire that we have that they would see the true love that we have for one another and that they would 
believe, having seen it, right? What this means is that unity, being united, being one, being at peace, having one accord with one another, this is part of our work of fulfilling the Great Commission as a church. When we are united with one another and with Christ, our words and our actions testify to the gospel of Christ. The unity that we have is a strong part of that testimony. In Amos 3.3 we read, Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment or an agreement? And the reason that that's important is because what he's saying is, no, of course they don't. Two men don't get along, two men don't walk with one another unless they have come to an agreement. The world, by its nature, is divided. Our sins that we are born in, that that our earthly nature is seeking to continue to have power in our lives, is a nature of fighting, a nature of selfishness, a nature of division. Unless we have the same desires as one another, what are we going to be pursuing? Every man will do that which is right in his own eyes. Right? And how did that work out for the Israelites in the book of Judges? Well, over and over and over again, they had to be brought back to repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is turning away from your own desire, away from your own will, and to the will of God the Father. Do you see that? So if you think about unity in a home, you can tell whether there's unity in a home. Right? Unity flows from the top down. If the mom and the dad fight, then what do the kids do? They get along perfectly with each other, right? Is that how it works? No. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? The the unity and the peace of a home flows from the top down just as it does with God the Father and His Son, it is through their perfectly united will, them seeking and doing the same things with one another, which is the salvation. They're working together, right? In in Jesus, in the book of John, over and over again, it's all about them working to bring about the salvation of the people that God the Father has given to His Son. All right? They're in perfect unity with one another. And what a beautiful thing. And so, when our desires match their desires, there is a beautiful peace between one another. And when our desires become selfish, even though the Son and the Father are still perfectly united, we have divisions among ourselves. Right? You see how that happens? And you can see this in a home as well. Even if mom and dad are getting along together, that doesn't mean all the kids aren't going to fight, does it? 
there's another aspect of unity that's important, and you can think about it with kids. Sometimes, mom and dad know there's something wrong because it got too quiet. Sometimes they know that there's something wrong because they hear screaming and yelling and fighting going on in the next room. And sometimes they know there's something wrong because everything got deathly still. And that's so peaceful, isn't it? Relaxing, in the easy chair, leaning back, thinking it's so nice to have some peace and quiet, and then your eyes pop open. Peace and quiet? What's going on here? And you go and you look and you find that your sons are united in taking screwdrivers to the dining room table. Is there unity in this home? Not the right kind of unity, is it? And we can do this in the church, right? We can all be united in in having the same desire, but not having that desire be the same as God the Father's desire, right? And so we see that there can be a false unity. A unity that is not based in the one will of God the Father and His Son but a unity that is based on our own will, our own selfishness, our own desires to seek after our own pleasures. But does that testify? Does that accomplish what the unity of Christ speaks of? That the watching world will see and believe in God? No. False unity cannot be ignored. It cannot be a goal. And it cannot be ignored. In 1 Corinthians 11, even in the context of the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So now, all of a sudden, we see that unity, as important as it is, has a limit where God, through his apostle, teaches us that there is actually a point to there being some factions, some divisions. I hear that there are divisions, and you know, I believe it. And in fact, there need to be some divisions, so that what? So that you can see who is approved. Now, this kind of This kind of lack of unity is very difficult. Because what it requires is it requires the exact same thing that's required of parents when their kids are fighting. It requires making a judgment. Seeing who is approved. Sometimes, sometimes, one of the kids is yelling at the other because the other has been disobeying. 
And sometimes one of the kids is yelling at the other because they are disobeying. Right? And so not every time is everybody equally at fault. There needs to be peace, but when one of the children is seeking that mom and dad be obeyed, and the other child is seeking to do their own selfish will, there is not unity, and it's appropriate that there is not unity there. You do not desire that unity be sought above all else. And it's possible for parents to discipline their children such that that's what they've taught their kids. Above all else, make sure that I'm never bothered by hearing there be a disagreement among you. See how easy that is to communicate that to your kids as parents, right? To make a sort of false unity be the thing that you're going for. No matter what your siblings are doing, no matter what's going on, I don't ever want to hear about there being any kind of conflict between you. What does that require of children that are seeking to obey you? It requires them to give into whatever selfish, wicked desires any other kids come up with. Right? So if we make unity, same thing happens in the church, if we make unity the top principle, the priority, the test of whether or not things are going properly, what we end up doing is throwing out any kind of judgment about right and wrong and simply allowing those who are the lowest common denominator in holiness to be the driving force of what will happen in a body. And so you say, well, you know, I don't think you should have done that, but I'm going to just, you know, for the sake of peace, we just need to accept him and move on. And whatever it is that he has done could be awful, awful things. And are we supposed to accept awful, awful things for the sake of peace and unity? No, we're not. Absolutely not. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Whoa. Whoa. Keep away. And this is not one of those places where it says, so-called brother. Do you see that? And so, if somebody comes to you and is laying a guilt trip on you about the necessity, absolutely, that you have to be reconciled to so-and-so, your brother. This is the filter that you have to filter it through. On the one hand, you know that reconciliation is God's will, right? You know that unity is what Jesus has prayed for here. And yet you also know that you have this command that you stay away 
from every brother who leads an unruly life. Keep away. What a strange thing. Strange, but so very, very helpful for the unity of the church. Strange to us because we wouldn't think that that would promote unity. But sin, seeking after unrighteousness, going after our own selfish desires, that is the cause of disunity. Disunity is not caused by those who say, that is wrong, we shouldn't be doing it. Even though that's when the fight erupts, right? If you just live and let live and never say anything to anybody about how they're living and what's going on, you know, then yeah, there'll never be any conflict. It's the moment that you speak up and say, that is sin and it ought not to be done, that, that things blow up in your face, and everyone looks at you like, how come you're causing disunity? But are you causing disunity? No, if you are judging properly, according to the will of God, then what you are doing is establishing unity. You are seeking after the will of God. Those who sin break unity. And you staying away from them or pointing it out, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, that is not the cause of disunity. Rather, it is the original sin that causes disunity. So false unity is something that we have to keep firm in our minds, understanding how it tempts us, and avoid it as we seek true unity. Now, there is one last thing that's very important in this area. It's also very easy then to make yourself the final judge of whether anything is right or wrong and to be divisive. And to simply say, well, that's sin and so I won't have anything to do with them and that's sin and so they're being, they're being disunited and that's, that shouldn't happen and we should do this and, and here's how this should happen. And it's kind of like a bossy older brother. Is the bossy older brother going after the will of the father in the home? Well, he would say that every last command that he gives is seeking after the will. I'm just trying to make everybody get along and behave and obey. You know this about yourself, right? You've been in those situations where I'm just trying to do this and you realize afterwards, no, I was just being selfish. I was just trying to get my own way. And cover it up as though, you know, it was me trying to be good and obedient and and helpful. So, 
yes, there have to be divisions among us so that we can see who is approved, who is seeking the will of the Father, right? But it's also the case that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so, we read in Ephesians, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So that would be obedience, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What is that calling? It's a calling to holiness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, why would you have to show tolerance for somebody? Think about that for a second. When do you have to show tolerance? When you don't? When you don't want to? Yeah, because why? Because they're being a bit of a meanie face. Right? When your brother sins against you, that's when tolerance is required, isn't it? That's when love covers over a multitude of sins. Now let's keep reading. Showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, unity is still the goal, isn't it? And so on the one hand, it is absolutely essential that we do not ignore all theological discussion and all differences, that we do not ignore sin, that we do not make unity the one and only thing that matters at the expense of holiness. And on the other hand, it is absolutely essential that we seek unity with love through patience and tolerance for one another. When do you do one? And when do you do the other? When do you tolerate? And when do you divide over an issue? I can't answer that this morning. That's an important question. And it requires a lot of wisdom, doesn't it? but we must at least realize that there's a decision to be made. Some of us fall to one side all the time, and some of us fall to the other side all the time. And some of us flip back and forth as though, you know, this has to be dealt with. And somebody says, no, I think maybe it's, you know, it's not as big a deal as you're making it. And then we go like, Okay, fine, it just doesn't matter at all then, right? 
oh, we can just put everything into these two categories. I'm like, no, no, there's, there's actually, you know, there's a little bit of middle ground here, too, between these two extremes. So it requires wisdom. But here's the beauty of this. This unity that Christ prays for, for us, God exhorts us to in the book of Ephesians. He continues, he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so this unity is established in the Spirit. And wisdom will be given to you if you pray to God for wisdom. And if you ask for His Spirit, He will give you His Spirit. In fact, He has told you to pray to Him for His Holy Spirit. And so if you're stuck trying to figure out which thing this is, is this something that we should in love and tolerance preserve peace in spite of? Or is this something that we need to divide over? Pray to God and He will give you His Spirit. And it is that Spirit that establishes unity in the first place. And so, you can pray to Him for wisdom. Let's pray.